Well, tonight's installment number two in this little brief series I'm going to do on the Christian life, doctrine, matters. And uh, we're going to look at the first few verses of Ephesians chapter two. I realize Pastor Morris covered this not too very long ago, but it's a good place for us to go. I suspect it's one of those passages you you go to often and perhaps with with those people you come into contact with who who need to know who they are, dead in trespasses and sins, and what the remedy is, but God, who is rich in mercy. He's the one who can give faith that they might believe and have life everlasting. It's a wonderful little summary, really, of the predicament of man and the procurement of salvation by Christ and the application of salvation by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read the first uh, 10 verses, and we're going to focus really on the first two or three. So let's read. Follow along. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless the word for our good and for his glory here tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity, for the simplicity. We can read this passage and we know our need. We can read this passage and know the answer for our need. We can read this passage and know the hope that we have and the life that we're given to live. We are Christ workmanship. Remarkable. We pray that everyone would leave this this room this evening with a greater desire to live sound doctrine in sound lives for his glory, your glory. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. So last week we started this. We looked at 2016. We backed up a bit to George Barna's research that came from that year, 2016. And in that study that he did, this was basically the takeaway from it. For Christians in the church, the doctrine that they profess 
does not have an influence of any significance on the lives they live. There's a divorce between doctrine and practice. If you want to put it in big terms, orthodoxy and orthopraxy aren't connected. Then I jumped ahead last week and we looked at the more recent state of theology survey that Lifeway Research did in conjunction with Ligonier Ministries. And we saw that what evangelical Christians profess to believe is not substantially different from the average person walking around the street. I highlighted just one doctrine. Over two-thirds of U.S. citizens walking down the street asked the question, do you think man is sinful? Answered, uh, no, born innocent. Everybody's okay. They just, they just get corrupted along the way somehow. That was 70% of the average streetwalker. 67% of evangelicals said the exact same thing. I hope that shocks you. Even if you're not surprised, it should still shock us that someone who professes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, professes to be a Christian, would believe that man is basically good. That tells us something, doesn't it? Either A, their faith is not based on anything in the Bible... Or they don't believe anything they've read in the Bible. There's a really bad ending to this story, y'all. If you get sin wrong, you will get Jesus wrong. If you get sin wrong, you get salvation wrong. Because see, if man's not basically bad, he's basically good, then he can cooperate in his salvation. That's the old Pelagian problem. And you have friends who struggle with their salvation because they say things like this. Well, I know that I know that I believed. But that means I can unbelieve. Got any friends like that? And they struggle. They're they're like the wind. They're just like the waters on the, on, the, on the lake, driven by the winds. They're never, they're, never, they're never sure about anything because they don't have a standard. They don't have Jesus Christ as their, as their focal point for their faith. Their faith involves their doing something. So if you get sin wrong, you're going to get salvation wrong in some degree. And that's not worth taking the chance. Because if that degree is a fatal degree, then there's no hope for you. The fact is, biblically and experientially, sin is real in our lives. 
from conception to death. See, even an honest person. Do you notice what I said? Biblically and experientially, sin is real in our lives. Even an honest person has to acknowledge that there's that they're sinners. That they don't always do what's right. Even if they don't have a particularly biblical standard for what's right and wrong. They still have a biblical standard for what's right and wrong. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. Romans 2 tells us that everyone, Gentile, Jew alike, stands either condemned or commended by the law that's written on their heart. That's part of possessing the Imago Dei, the image of God. And the fall didn't obliterate that. It just marred it. So, tonight what I want us to do, having dealt largely with that last week and seeing how important doctrine is, I want us to think about it again from a different angle, and that's what, what are all the factors? What, this sin that we talk about, uh, we know that we're born with a sin nature. And, of course, then you get into the whole question, you know, is, is this nature or nurture? And the answer, of course, is yes. We're sinners because we have a sin nature. But we're also sinners because we're nurtured in it. Right? The scriptures tell us that there are three contributing factors, nurturers, if you will, in our lives. And they're all three right there in chapter 2 of Ephesians. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil nurture us in our sin. Romans 1, you know, works through, gives us the gospel there in verses 16 and 17. Those two verses that revolutionize the world. When those two verses in the hands of the Holy Spirit pierced the heart of Martin Luther, the Reformation was sparked. And the world has not been the same since. On down it goes and said, here's the problem with man. And from that latter part of chapter 1 on through chapter 2 into half, halfway through chapter 3, we're dealing with man and his sinfulness, his nature. We get to the end of chapter 2. Men do perverse things. And they commend people for doing perverse things. Do you ever think about that? The world around us is, is cheering us every time we sin. Oh, it's, it's not a big deal. You're at work. You fudge on the books. You're at work. You do this, you do that unethical thing. And somebody there is going to assure you, oh, people have done far worse than that. Don't worry about it. The world commends us 
for sinning. Misery loves company. Sinners love company. Children, you're going to find this out in the world. Sinners love for you to sin because it makes them feel better. Because, see, if you're living a holy life, what, what, what is it Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? That we're a light, and light shines in the darkness. What's the thing you hate when you're sleeping? This is particularly you children who may have trouble waking up in the morning and you're slumbering away, peaceful. What's the thing you do not want to happen? You don't want that door to open and you don't want that light switch to be flipped on. And you don't want those curtains to be thrown back. And you don't want the sunshine coming, flowing in on your bed because you can't stay in the darkness and you can't slumber and sleep and be lazy anymore. You have to get up and do something. So when you're living a holy life, that's why the world loves for you to sin with them is because otherwise your light is shining and they don't like that. It bothers them. It blinds them. So let's look at these three just briefly tonight. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a major distraction to the Christian life. Our citizenship, did you notice that as we read through chapter 2, 1 through 10? Where is our citizenship as Christians? If we have been saved by God, verse 4 is that turning point. He's described us to the T, children of wrath. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We are sons of disobedience. We live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. But God. And then he says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he saved us. He raised up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places. What? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where our citizenship is. You know, when I traveled to Peru, or down to Brazil, when I was in Hong Kong, when I've been to the UK. I may not be in the US, but my citizenship is in the United States. And that's the way with Christians. We're not in heaven right now, but our citizenship is. And so we're under all the laws of the, of the heavenly, uh, heavenly land and we have all the privileges. And we're living in a country right now that's not terribly friendly to Christians. But our citizenship is in a place that is friendly to our, our beliefs. Our citizenship is in heaven. But we live in this world. We live in a world that's marked by hatred and enmity and alienation toward God. And because the world hated Christ, Christ says the world's going to hate us. You say, well, I don't know anybody really hates me. 
you know what? I bet they strongly dislike you. If you live the Christian life. And it steps on their worldly toes. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He put it well. We are in Christ, but we're also in London or Glasgow or Manchester or New York or Hong Kong or Melbourne. We love and serve Jesus and keep close to him, but we ride to work each day past the enticing advertisements. We take the escalator from the tube, that's the the subway, below to the fresh air above, remembering the promises Christ gave us earlier in the day in his word. But from both sides of us beckon the many temporal pleasures of the flesh, deliberately packaged to capture us precisely at our weakest points and overcome us when resistance is low. We're citizens of heaven. We live in this world and the world packages sin to entice us and to catch us and to seduce us and to bring us down. I was a business major at Tennessee Tech University. And as a business major, you take a few marketing courses. And it's amazing how unethical marketing is. Any discipline is unethical that starts first day this way. Something you're going to learn is that there are things that you can say that are not true. And they may be deceitful, but they're not false. I still remember that line in my senior marketing course. The laws of marketing... She laid out all the laws on the books at that time. I'd had business law. I had senior course in business law at that same time. And I was working in both of those. And doggone it, if, if, if she wasn't right and that textbook wasn't right, you can lie and cheat and steal all day long in the marketing business and not get in trouble for it. It's legal. What that tells me is that you can act like Satan and be respectable in the United States of America and be successful in the United States of America because Satan cheats and steals and kills. And so the Christian stands up and says, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to package the vape for children. It cost them a bunch of money, too, for doing that. But they made a whole lot more in order to pay out that much, didn't they? That's what Sinclair is saying. All around us, the packaging is designed to seduce us, to catch us, to draw us away from Christ, away from holiness, to unholiness. The world can choke 
the very life out of us Christians. Listen to what Jesus said. The one on whom seed was sown among thorns, and that's all of us, we live in this world, we live among thorns. The seed is the word, if you remember that parable. The seed is sown among the thorns. This man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You can hear the word preached on Sunday here at this church. You can hear the word taught in the Sunday school classes. You can come on Wednesday night for the devotions in the adult class, for the catechism classes for the children, and you can go out into this world and that word can be choked out, snuffed out. I like those tours. I'll probably do it tonight. It's such a lovely evening. I'll probably start my propane tank up for my for my fire pit there on the deck and I'll light the torches around the perimeter and in a little uh, two or three hours later when I'm ready to go in I'll go and I'll put that little lid back on the torches and snuff out the light and all that's left is just some stinking smoke I'm afraid that's what the world does to us far too often we're not lights We're just stinking smoke in a world that needs the light. The world can choke us out. So let me ask you some questions along that line. How often have you read your Bible and you're in the course of reading your Bible and all of a sudden you're sitting there thinking about what you need to be doing out there? That's the world choking it out. Or maybe you didn't even get to reading your Bible because the first thing you thought of this morning was what I didn't do yesterday. Instead of having our priorities right, that no, here's where I need to be, this is where I need to start, this is what I this is this is the best way I can do. They asked Luther, who had this 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 discipline of praying for two or three hours every morning before he would go out. Ask him something to the effect of how can you spend so much time when there's so much to be done out there? So much time in prayer when there's so much to be done. And he said, because if I don't spend so much in prayer, I can't do that out there. Seemed to serve Luther pretty well. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we all have to get up early and pray for two or three hours. But you get the point, don't you? If we let the cares of this world interfere with reading the Bible, prayer, family devotions, that's just the world choking the life out of us. And it's no wonder then that the pollsters come up with all these numbers concerning the church and the state of the church when that's going on. But it's not just the world, it's the flesh. Paul here in this passage refers to, did you notice the passions of our flesh in verse 3? The passions of our flesh. John has the same message for us. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. You see how he, not obeying God, not keeping his commandments, betrays the lust of the flesh. That's the reality of our lives if we're not keeping his commandments. We're just following the lust of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. The boastful pride of life. And here we see how interconnected the world and the flesh are, don't we? Do you notice? He starts, he says, if anyone loves the world, for all that's in the world, then he defines that, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Those things are in the world. That's what the world is. We're here talking about not the world, the beautiful cosmos that God created, those beautiful trees, the beautiful sunshine, the beautiful blue skies. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the world system. We're talking about sin. And the people of this world that have sold their souls to Satan and his ways, they've read all of his bestsellers. They're following his course of thinking. The father of lies, as he's described here, the prince of the power of the air, instead of God. And so they end up lusting for the things of this world. And it's easy to do, folks. Some of you young folks sitting here are in college. You have your whole life, you think, may end tonight, might end tomorrow, who knows. But at this point, we think we have the rest of our life. And we want to we do something with our lives. Well, that's wonderful. That's a great ambition. Everybody should have it. Hopefully all of you do have that. The question is, at the end of your life, is it going to be any eternal good or is it just temporal? You see what John says? The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. It's the reason Paul says that in everything we do, whether to eat or drink, any work we do, do it as unto the Lord. Then it has an eternal value. It has eternal contribution to make to this, this dark world. We struggle with flesh. We struggle with flesh and blood. But the source of that struggle, as we know from elsewhere in the Bible, is not the flesh and the blood. It's a spiritual struggle. The dark world system, poking and prodding. You ought to look like this. You should dress like that. You need to live this kind of life. You really, you know, I've been around you too long enough. Aren't you bored with him? Aren't you bored with her? I mean, that's what the commercials are saying. We ought to all have electric cars now. I got nothing against electric cars. They don't sound good, but I got nothing against them. If they can come up with a way for the Tesla to sound like the Camaro and the Mustang, I'll like them better. But, have you notice the commercials? I mean, we all ought to be driving 
an electric car. And you're nothing. I mean, it's replaced the BMW as the status symbol. Again, nothing, nothing, I don't care if you drive an electric car. That's perfectly fine. But we're being told that that's how we ought to do it. We should be bored with fossil fuel cars. We should shed antiquated norms. It's not a problem to sin, to have illicit affairs physically and mentally. And oh, if you're not happy, divorce her. Five days, five years, 50 years, what the heck? You know, this is about you. Be happy. Who said, who made up the rule, only heterosexual marriages? Right? I mean, is this what we're hearing? The world system, and see what it's doing? It's hitting at the flesh. The pride of life. The eyes, the lust of the eyes. What we see, that's what we should have. What we see, that's what we should eat. Other women, other men, that's what we need. We go into debt because of the desires of the eyes. We eschew the counsel of pastors. When the pastor comes along and trying to do premarital counseling, and he wants to start with the spiritual questions. He wants to know if the young lady, if this, if this young man loves Christ and this young man doesn't have a profession of faith, he doesn't know who Christ is. Oh, but he, he is a Christian pastor. Just trust me. Do you understand what just happened there? The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. Why do you want to be unequally yoked? Because of the lust of the flesh. All of a sudden that totally does away with whether or not he is an equal of yours spiritually. This can work both ways. Young men for young women, young women, young men. And because hormones have kicked in, flesh has kicked in, spiritual reality and the, and the, the whole issue of being equally yoked in Christ is out the window. Why? Because everything we see, television to internet to print material, says you need a husband that looks like that, smells like that, tastes like that, does like that. Madison Avenue has rewritten the whole book on ethics. We even violate the Sabbath to pad our pocketbooks. The desires of life. Isn't that remarkable? That we'd give away the best day of the week to promote. It just, it continues to amaze me. But that's the lust of the flesh. 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Backing in upon us. Well, we have to go on. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It is true, and I said this in a sermon recently. It is true, Satan is bound and he is a conquered foe. But Christians need to remember his architectural plan for the world is still available. It can be bought online. It's found in all of his bestsellers that still are out there to be purchased. Satan's minions are busy at work. And by the way, they're not all fallen angels. He has minions in flesh. And such were some of you. In fact, such were all of us at one time. Did you see that in the passage? You know, we tend to think sometimes Satan and his, his workers, they're all fallen angels. But did you notice you were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all following, we're just, we're just following Satan around. That should be awful disconcerting to everyone in here. So just because he's been conquered, remember, he hasn't been finally banished. He may be behind bars, but his publications are still out there. And this is the way Jesus described him. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now, I'm going to pause right there. Somebody's going to say, well, I've never been tempted to murder. Check your tongues. Jesus said, if you think it, you've done it. Right? Go look up your larger catechism question. On the question concerning we're not to kill, we're not to murder, and see if you haven't violated that commandment. I don't even own a gun, Pastor. And my knife's not big enough. But your tongue is. And our minds are fully capable of murdering people in the biblical definition. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Wherever, whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. But remember how this started. You are of your father, the devil. Satan's a problem. Now, he's not behind every tree. And he's certainly not over there behind that column. But his game plan is out there. It's a bestseller. And by the way, you don't have to send any money before midnight to get it.
Here's Jesus' other words. The thief, speaking of Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He will steal the joy of your salvation, Christian. He will kill relationships that are holy. He'll destroy a church by inciting jealousy and suspicion and rumor and gossip. Things like, oh, the church has plenty of money. I need it more than they do this month. I'm, I, this is insurance month. I, I, I'm not going to give my offering this month because I got to pay my insurance. That's like, I was lazy six days and didn't labor, so I'm going to work on the Sabbath. You know, that's, that's in the same ballpark. We're stealing from God. And we're just following our father, Satan, who, what did Jesus say? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Maybe that cynical whisper in the ear, oh, you've worked hard all week. God won't blame you for staying home today. After all, it's a day of rest. So you're just resting today. You can get in your worship later. And you can watch it online. Or maybe something like this. Him? A deacon? Well, she does more than he does. And all of a sudden, the church is in turmoil. Right? You're not supporting the, the worship and work of the church to the best of your ability. You're not submitting to the discipline and government of the church like you took vows to do. Satan, the father of lies, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. If, you, if In following the lies of Satan, you lose everything worth having, everything, everything that's eternal. And now let me ask you, how did Jesus respond to Satan? Remember those, those, that night? Satan came with all the propositions. How did Jesus respond? It's the same way you and I have to respond. When the lust of the flesh, when the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, when the advertisements, as, as Sinclair said, as the, ad, 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 the, as the adverts come at us from every side of the subway terminal, we could say every side of the interstate, all those pop-ups when we're, we're searching for something on the internet, When those adverts pop up, how do we answer? Well, you know how, how Jesus answered. He just answered with the word of God. Now, if we're going to answer the flesh, the world, and the devil with God's word, what does that require? It requires that we know the word of God. And we have to know it pretty well. Remember what Jesus said to, to Peter when Peter was, was not exactly saying the things he, was, he should have been saying. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes but men's. That'll come in real handy, y'all. When your friends are not setting their 
their minds and their plans on God's purposes and plans, just get behind me, Satan. Because they're just Satan's minions. And they're there trying to steal and kill and destroy you. So that's how we respond to the lies of Satan. Get behind me TV ad. Get behind me pop-up ad. How about that unethical proposition? Or that temptation to, 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 to blur the lines ethically? Here's how the early Christians answered when they were forced or faced rather with persecution. It was two little words in the Latin. In English, it, it, it takes three. Four, actually. Yeah, four. In Latin, it's sum Christianus. In English, it's I am a Christian. What? You're not going to do this because you're a Christian? That's right. You're not going to blur the lines because you're a Christian? That's right. You're not going to tell a white lie? It's not a black lie. It's just a white lie. No, I'm a Christian. You're not going to do that to get that job? No, I'm a Christian. That sounds easy right here, doesn't it? But it won't be that easy out there. And some of you adults already know that. It's not that easy out there. The pressure of this world. But the Lord's grace is sufficient. Listen to what Calvin said. We'll close with this. All the things which make for the enriching of this present life are sacred gifts of God, but we spoil them by our misuse of them. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil cause you to misuse the precious gifts of life. If we want to know the reason why, it's because we are always entertaining the delusion that we will go on forever in this world. The point is that the mind of a Christian ought not to be filled with thoughts of earthly things or find satisfaction in them, for we ought to be living as if we might have to leave this world at any moment. The apostle is not advising Christians to get rid of their possessions. All that he asks for is that they do not find them completely engrossing. Don't be engrossed with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Get beyond this thing of thinking, this is it. Life doesn't get any better than this. Because it does. If you could talk to saints who have gone on and they're enjoying even the disembodied bliss of heaven. They would say to you, and I can say this without any fear of being ever corrected. They would say to you, it got better. The moment I transitioned from this life to that life, it got better. Why? Because you're free from the presence of sin. And you're fully in the presence of Christ. So let me ask you something.
in order to build yourself up to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Are you in Sunday school every week building up your spiritual muscles? And I want to tell you, some of you in this room aren't, and you are weak for it. Two, are you availing yourself of the ladies' Bible studies, ladies? There's one on Tuesday morning. There's one on Saturday mornings. Husbands, keep the kids. Your wives need it. Pastor's class, every other week, 11 o'clock, Thursday morning, anybody can come. Men's breakfast and Bible study. Reading good books. We live in a great time in, in the history of the world where there are books of all generations available for us to read to, 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 to bolster our faith, to build up our spiritual minds and muscles. There's no reason in this day for a believer to be a weakling unless the world, the flesh, and the devil have a hold of you. Father, thank you for this evening. We ask now that you would send us out growing in grace, stronger in our faith, more holy like Jesus. In Jesus' name we do ask. Amen.